How you doing? Wow, that was weak. Should get used to it by now, but uh, good to have you here this morning. My name is Joe. Um, I'm one of the pastors. I work with the Greenhouse, which is uh, college age and young adults. And so if you're that age and you haven't gotten connected anywhere, come talk to me afterward. I'd love to meet you. Um, I'm super excited about what we're looking at this morning. And mostly because I get a chance to spend uh, many of my hours in my week just reading and studying the Word of God. And I feel like it's, it's just done so much in my life. So I'm, I'm excited about sharing that with you. Let's pray and then we're going to dive in. Father, thanks so much today that we get to be um, in a church like New Hope and we get to, to, to read and, and study your word and, and hear it taught. More than anything, Lord, I pray that, that you would uh, increase and that I would decrease, that you would have your way with our time, that you would be softening the hearts of the people in this, this room and those that are following us with us online, God, that, that we would be people who uh, would have lives that are marked by um, your word. That, that as, um, as I've been thinking about it, that you would make us discontent with just simply uh, being hearers and not doing something as a result of what we hear. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you know much about my story, but I grew up in a fairly, fairly religious home, uh, but my Protestant church background really never explained who Jesus was and what the gospel was really all about. All I knew from church is that I was supposed to be a good person. And that if you were good, you went to heaven. And if you were bad, you went to hell. And, um, you know, I don't know um, where you're at, but by the time I was in, at the end of my high school days, I was pretty much done with religion. There was nothing that was uh, really attractive to me about what I saw growing up. I wasn't attracted really to the Christian faith because I was never exposed to the Christian faith. That is until I went to college. My freshman year in college, I got connected with a church on campus at the University of Illinois where I went to school, where I saw, I saw true Christian faith being lived out. And around the same time, I met a young woman who wasn't a Christian either. We, neither one of us were Christians. Her name is Kelsey, and a couple years later, I ended up marrying her. And what we experienced there as freshmen, it changed our lives. We saw young men and women living to please Jesus. We were involved in, in a Bible study with people who actually wanted to learn and grow in their faith. We saw people actually wanting to apply this book to their lives. They talked about Jesus as if he were real and as if he were actually involved in their lives. But more than anything, we experienced this. We watched Christians trying to love and serve each other. That little Bible study that we were involved in was really kind of eclectic. I don't know if that's a negative word in your mind, but it was just, it was so diverse. We had, we had athletes, we had, we had artists, we had scholars, we had normal people, we had people who were um, extroverted, we had introverts, we had kind of the spectrum. But you know what was interesting? They were all accepted as a part of this community. And what we're going to see today in the next section of 1 Thessalonians is that the way we live together as a church, it can have a tremendous impact on uh, the world around us. And Paul is going to lay out some very practical thoughts that I think are going to help us as we seek to point our friends and our neighbors toward Jesus. But again, what's going to help us, I think, in our proclamation of the gospel more than anything is for us to allow the gospel to go deep into our lives to really penetrate every area of us. And, and, and as it does that, it's going to make us different people whose lives cause those around us to wonder, 
could, could the Christian faith be real? Like, might Jesus be who he claimed to be? Could he actually change my life? Could he help me with the things that I'm struggling with? And so if you're new with us, we're glad you're here. Mark, is, if you've been with us for any period of time, he's been working his way, kind of steady plotting through the book of Romans. And as he's been doing that, I've been doing, uh, kind of giving him a, a rest, going through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in uh, Thessalonica, the first letter that he wrote. And I've titled this series, The Church at Her Best. And honestly, the more time I spend studying this letter, the more jacked I, I get at just how encouraging it is. If you remember, this church came into existence when Paul preached the gospel in this city. And, and people turned to God from worshiping idols. And in the midst of a, a hostile environment, these young believers began to grow and mature in their faith. And their spiritual journey was so encouraging that, that the news of what God was doing in this, in this church, it had like this positive ripple effect all over this region for hundreds of miles around. They felt the impact. Wouldn't it be cool if people in, in Traverse City were impacted by the way that God was at work in, in our lives here at New Hope? That's kind of what was going on in that city. Other churches were being built up by the news of what the Holy Spirit was doing with these people. Last time we, we looked at this letter, if you remember, if you were with us, Paul was exhorting the church to, um, toward God's will for their life, which was the idea of being sanctified or just the idea of growing in their faith. And specifically, it was sanctification as it relates to pursuing sexual purity. The specific command was to abstain from sexual immorality. Remember, I think the other thing you need to remember as we've been working through this letter is Paul has been a, just an incredible cheerleader and encourager for this group of people. And we're gonna see him do that again here in chapter four in the section we're looking at. So we're gonna pick up in chapter four, verse nine. If you have a Bible, you can flip uh, your way to that. Uh, and if you have a web-enabled device, you can tap your way there. And um, we're gonna look at some encouragements that Paul gives to the church and he has, I think, for us as well. And this is what he writes. Chapter four, starting in verse nine. Paul says this. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that it is, it, it, indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And again, we've talked about this as we've worked our way through this letter, but you can just see here, Paul is just, is just encouraging these people over and over. And you know, as I was starting to think about this, just even in my own life, I was thinking, you know, I need to grow as an encourager. I think we're really good at pointing out the things that need to change in the people around us, the things maybe even in our own lives, the things in our, in our spouse or maybe our kids. But I think I need to be a better, I need to do a better job of encouraging. I don't know about you. So that's one of the things I think about as I, as I start to think about this letter. And what Paul does here, he sees what these people are doing well. And you know, a lot of times when people are doing well, we don't say anything. But what Paul does, he just pours on the encouragement. Now, if you read it again, it says, now concerning brotherly love. That, that, that word for brotherly love is the word Philadelphia. And it's the same uh, word that, that we use in the, in the city of Philadelphia. It's the, the city is known as the city of brotherly love, right? And the sense of the word is this. It's the natural affection shown between siblings. 
especially as those who are now siblings because they're a part of God's family. So all y'all and me, we were adopted into God's family. We're not naturally blood relation, but the blood relation that we have now is because of the blood of Christ. And this is a, really, this, this word Philadelphia is a special word to show the kind of love the family of God is to demonstrate toward each other. And that's how Paul starts it off. And Paul goes on and he says that you have been taught by God to love one another. Well, what's he mean by that? Well, we have all been taught by God to love one another simply by reflecting on the gospel message. And as we think about what Jesus has done for us, we, we learn about what real love looks like. Look at how John, the apostle John, puts this in 1 John chapter 3. He says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, Jesus' example is the greatest picture of love that the world will ever see. It's the greatest lesson on love that the world will ever learn. It's the kind of living example that you just never get beyond. This is what this church built their life around and, and sought to live out in their day-to-day -day interactions with each other and those outside the church. And by the grace of God, they excelled in loving each other. God taught them to love because of the gospel message. By this, we know love, that he loved us and he laid down his life for us. And because of that, we ought to love one another. And the goal of steering into the truth of the gospel is to allow the gospel to shape how we live our lives, how we think, uh, what we say, what we do. But you know, this church wasn't just known for loving each other. In fact, Paul says that they were loving all the believers throughout Macedonia. Now, how do they pull that off? How do you love not only those in your local church, let alone an entire region like Macedonia? Well, if you were to flip over to 2 Corinthians 8, you'd read something very interesting. Paul writes this. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, wait. This church in Thessalonica is a part of that region. Hmm. For in a severe test of affliction, you know what? Actually, do you remember, this, this church went through a severe test of affliction. It says, their, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Paul, I mean, if you read that, you, you should be like, whoa, whoa. These people were extremely poor, and yet it says that they were extremely generous? Let's keep going. Verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now when you and I hear that, that should just stop us dead in our tracks. Nobody pushed these people to give. They begged so they, they could be a part of, of this generosity these people loved the family of God by giving generously. 
they made sure that the saints, which is just another word for Christians, that they were being taken care of. Those who were struggling and had little were, um, were being helped by those who had plenty. Now again, we aren't told in that 2 Corinthians passage which Macedonians Paul is referring to, but we do know that Thessalonica was in that region. Again, we, we, and I'm guessing that this church that we're looking at today was part of the generosity that was going on there. Now hear me, when we as individual Christians, when we band together to live like this in a local church, something crazy is gonna happen because we live in a world that's watching. And for as long as I've been a Christian, churches and parachurches have come up with tons of different strategies uh, for reaching out to people. And I'm not slamming that at all. A lot of that has been really good. But you know, in all my years of following Jesus, I've never heard anyone take Jesus' strategy for, for evangelism seriously. He said this in John 13. He said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then he said this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. When we love each other, it gets the world's attention. If you go back to my story, that's what stopped me in my tracks. I saw Christians in a local church loving each other, living out the gospel message together back when I was a freshman. And it not only changed my life, it altered my eternity. As those college students loved each other, it really prepared my heart to understand the gospel message. My wife and I still talk about our freshman year. Those were the first Christians we ever met. And they spent time together and demonstrated the gospel by the way they interacted with each other. Now, if the world will know that we, we are followers of Jesus by the way we love each other, we got to ask the question, what does that look like? Like, how do we do that? How do we actually love each other? Well, here's the reality. We're not tested to love until we face some sort of conflict, some sort of challenge in our relationships, right? I like how this guy Warren Wearsby puts it. He says this. How does God cause our love to increase more and more, like Paul talks about there? He says, by putting us into circumstances that, listen, force us to practice Christian love. Love is the circulatory system of the body of Christ. But if our muscle, spiritual muscles are not exercised, the circulation is impaired. The difficulties that we believers have with one another are opportunities for us to grow in our love. This explains why Christians who have had the most problems with each other often end up loving one another deeply. Much to the amazement of the world. See, in the world, you experience conflict and, and people are just like, I'm out. I don't need to be your friend. I don't need to hang out with you anymore. But we're to be different. We're to work through our conflict. We're to, to seek reconciliation when we hurt each other. So as we are in this church together, we should expect challenges to come up between us. Those difficulties are actually opportunities for us to grow in our love for each other. 
When Paul defines love, you know, if you were to look at 1 Corinthians 13, which is a lot of people's kind of favorite section on what love really is. It, Paul says that love is patient, it's kind, it's, it's not rude, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's, you know, it, it keeps no record of wrongs. And so when you think about it, love isn't love until it comes up against an opportunity to be impatient. And we choose to show patience. That's when someone experiences love. Love isn't love until it comes up against an opportunity to be unkind. And we choose to show kindness. That's when someone feels loved. For these people in this church, they had a chance to be generous with those in need. Love wasn't love until they chose to give. They had the choice. And when they decided to give, they grew in their love for, their fa for the family of God. Love isn't love until there's action. We know this church loved because they gave of their resources to help each other. Now, I want to get you a little bit uncomfortable for a moment, if you would let me do that. One key um, uh, way we love each other, it's by the way we, we talk about each other or the way we choose to not talk about each other. The church is one of the worst rumor mills there is. Let's face it, many of us are guilty of sharing or receiving stuff about someone else in the church, maybe even this week. Stuff that we have no right to be a part of. And the tongue or our words, according to the book of James in the New Testament, is, is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. And we're told that the tongue is actually set on fire by hell itself. And so here's what we need to do when we're tempted to talk about someone else in the church. And this actually applies to not only people in the church, but people outside the church as well. We either need to go directly to the person that we have an issue with, or we need to remain silent. Those are the only two options we have. Sharing prayer request gossip is sin. Hey, have you heard about Joe? Situation's worse than, than you'd ever imagine. Let me tell you about it. He needs prayer. That's sin. Going and talking to someone other than the person that we have the issue with is sin. It's disruptive. It's divisive. It's damaging. Now, I know that sometimes we need to get help and that's why we go to talk to someone else. And if you do that, here's the key. Don't use the person's name that you have the issue with. Keep them anonymous. A lot of times we teach people to say like person A and person B. And so when you operate in the realm of the anonymous, you're actually protecting someone else's name. Get the help you need and then go to that person directly. And when someone shares something with you that's not yours to receive, you need to graciously shut down the conversation and encourage that person to go and talk directly to the other person that they have an issue with. The way you put out the fire of the tongue is by only pursuing the appropriate outlets for your words. Now, we've gone to the uncomfortable. Let's stay there for just a little bit, okay? A little bit longer. In all the stuff that we've been talking about here this morning as we've been looking at this church, there's some tension that's been brewing in my mind. I don't know if you feel it, I feel it. And here's where maybe you and I need to feel a, a little bit of a rub in our lives. The early church was very community-oriented. Their, their culture was and still is way more communal in nature than ours. 
You know, people from the East, they tend to be more community or, uh, you know, together in, in small, you know, groups of people. And us Westerners, we tend to be and live more independently. We, we tend a lot more to be individualistic in the way that we think. And so we don't often think of community the same way that the first century Thessalonian believers did. So the rub for many of us is that we don't have many relationships in the church. A lot of us, we come on the weekend and we leave and we're just relatively or completely unknown. We don't do life together with other people from New Hope. And so we miss out on what Paul is getting at here in in chapter four and what Jesus is talking about in, in John 13. So for the church to love each other, we have to actually be together. For the world to see our love for each other, we have to spend time around each other. For this, like for this whole thing to have a gospel influence, they have to see us together enough, working through our conflict, putting love into action by expressing patience, kindness, forbearing with each other. We have to be together. But there's even more to it than that. They have to actually see us together. I'm not going down a rabbit trail. I just want you to try to keep with my train of thought here. We need to be together and somehow we need to be close to them at the same time. It's not enough for us to be together here, you know, at the church. We need to find creative ways to be together and invite our unbelieving friends into that with us. And so here's one of the things that we, we've tried to do over the last couple of decades. We've tried to just kind of get together with other people that are Christians and then invite our unbelieving friends into that with us. And so um, specifically, we, we look at Halloween as a really uh, strategic opportunity to do some of these things. I know you're getting ready to launch tomatoes at me or something because a lot of times Halloween is kind of poo-pooed by the church. But this is one of the first and only opportunities where our neighbors actually open their doors and we get a chance to interact with them. And so what we did last year is we actually went to the neighborhood with some of the other people from our small group. And their neighborhood has better candy than ours anyway. And so... um, but what, what we did is, uh, you know, like a couple of the couples uh, were together and then they invited uh, other people from that neighborhood to come and be a part of that with us. And it was just awesome. And that just kind of was the spark for a relationship to form with some of the people that we've, we didn't know before. And there's, there are couples right now who are on the, on the verge of becoming Christians as a result of what happened there a year ago. So I'm really looking forward to Halloween again this year for that reason. Let's look for ways that we can be together and invite these, the people that are outside of the community of faith, to be there with us. And let's see what God will do. Now, that was all under my first thought. No worries, we should be be able to wrap things up within the next hour. Just kidding. We're going to move relatively quickly here. Paul goes on in verse 11. He says this. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. In other words, love the church, love the family of God more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. And so Paul urges these Christ followers in three ways. He says, first, aspire to live quietly. The Greek word quietly is the word hei su hazo. And it means to be at rest or to be still or to keep quiet. And the sense of the word is to lead a life free from disruption or commotion. Okay, the second urging that Paul gives is he says, mind your own affairs. 
Do what's uniquely yours to do or what specifically is yours to do. The actual literal phrase is mind your own things. It could be said mind your own business. And then the third urging that Paul gives is that we are to work with our hands. And really the sense there is to have a way of providing for you and your family so that you're not a burden to those around you. And the point behind all three of those urgings that he gives us is verse 12, where he says this, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, I don't know about you, but I, when I study, I try to look at many commentaries. I don't want to just read one. I try to pick at least three or four and kind of get a perspective. These are men and, and women who have spent a lot of years studying these things. And so I want to, uh, you know, kind of get their uh, thoughts as I'm, as I'm looking at these different topics. And a lot of times what I do is I try to figure out, like, is there one that kind of stands out? And why does it stand out? And a, a lot of times I'll kind of look more closely at that one to see what they're kind of getting at. Now, many commentary writers, as I've studied this week, say that Paul writes these three commands because the church is wrestling with confusion about the return of Jesus. And that's going to be the next topic that we look at the next time we're together looking at this, um, this, this letter. They argue that a number of the Thessalonian believers use the expectation of the imminent return of Jesus as an excuse to abandon all work. They're like, Jesus is coming back. I didn't do that. But... One commentary writer disagreed with the others, and I really like the way this writer is thinking. He says, we don't see Paul tie these three commands to confusion about the return of Jesus. So for all the things that the church was doing well here, there were still areas that they needed to be challenged in. And this is what the commentary writer says. He says, rather than minding their own affairs, perhaps some in the church had a tendency to interfere in the running of the church, though they weren't church officers. This could also explain the exhortation to respect those over you in the Lord and live in peace with each other, which is the next chapter that we're going to be looking at down the road. Or Paul may have written these words thinking of the idle busybodies he mentioned in in, uh, the next chapter, in chapter 5, or in this next letter that he wrote to this church. He goes on and says this, and this is huge. He says, in either case, the focus of the passage is on the congregation itself and maintaining peace within it. A peace that would deprive outsiders of anything to criticize. And so I just have a few thoughts for you to consider before we wrap things up. The command to live quietly. I want to talk about that just real quick. That has nothing to do with the church toning down its proclamation of the gospel. Paul consistently challenged all the churches to be bold with the gospel message. Don't forget, if you remember back when we first started this letter, that in the first two chapters, Paul is super strong in saying, hey, we need to get the gospel message out, even in the midst of opposition, even in the, in the midst of our affliction. And so living quietly has more to do with being at peace than boldly proclaiming the gospel message. And then the final thought is this. God desires for us to live in such a way that we cultivate the respect of our friends, neighbors, and coworkers outside the faith community. And if there's one area where the church has lost respect for those outside, or by, by those outside the, the community of faith, it's in the area of politics. I've watched the church alienate more people because of the way it emphasizes its political candidates and parties 
And the reality is there are some very important issues in politics and things that I care deeply about. But at the end of the day, if you want to change the world, lead your friends to Jesus. Because when the Holy Spirit comes into their lives, he will transform them in a way that politics never could. Politics tends to polarize. Don't die on that hill. Die on Skull Hill. Choose to die on the same hill that Jesus died on. It was the hill with the cross on it. Now, a lot of people this year have asked me my opinion about the president. And you probably have an opinion about the president yourself. But I have looked for more opportunities to, of ways that I can talk about Jesus when people ask me about our president. We see a need for change in the world, right? And, and when we look out there, we think it's not only that the issues are, are out there, the issues are in here as well. And so what we're really longing for, we're longing for Jesus to return. And we're longing for him to set up his kingdom. And so to put all this together, let's pursue Jesus's outreach strategy where we love the family of God and we avoid inappropriate talk. Let's band together and expose those outside the church to the love we have for each other, a love that was established by the gospel. We've got to find ways to be together and then have them be with us. And let's aspire to live a life free from commotion or disruption, a life that's marked by peace. Uh, let's mind our own affairs. Let's work hard so we're not a burden to anyone. And with the ultimate goal of cultivating the respect of the world so we can point them to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful again that we get to be people who not only hear your word, but look for ways to, uh, to do it. Would you give us opportunities to show love to each other? Would you help us to work through the, the challenges and the conflicts that are inevitable as we're a part of a community here with New Hope? Would you use this church as a beacon of light in this community? Would you give us ideas? Would you inspire us to think of ways that we, could, we can be together and invite our unbelieving friends into that as well? Lord, we, we just ask that you would, you would transform the world around us and that you would use us as part of that, as your team. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for coming. Have a great week.